with regards to pivotal moments in my life, um, losing half of my own nest egg was one of the most pivotal things that could happen. I mean, it, it was the spark that got me on the journey of self-discovery and personal growth. Welcome back to The Empire's New Clothes, the show where we discuss the forces that make and break empires. I'm your host, Brad from MacArthur. I'm sad to announce today is our last guest interview episode. We are concluding season one, but what we're going to do is take a break over the next six months, half year. We're going to put our heads down. We're going to work really hard and create a podcast mini-series where we have the freedom to dive deep into a topic, a single topic, every episode, uh, which will cover one of the main pillars of an empire. We're super stoked. Uh, We look forward to coming up with this really cool series. And if you'd like to follow along to know when we're going to actually release it, when the release date is, head to our website, theempiresclosed.com and subscribe. And that way we'll hit you up when we're about to release that series. But without further ado, today we're speaking with the man, the myth, the legend, Aaron Samsonoff. He's an entrepreneur, an investor, a trader, and he's specifically involved in the crypto space quite heavily today, though he's been involved since 2011. So we catch up with Aaron to figure out what's going on in his world in crypto and also get some of his perspective on the global economy as well. I hope you enjoy. Aaron, thanks for coming on today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this discussion. So we we talked a bit off camera before we jumped on, and uh, I have so many notes. We're definitely not going to get to everything. You seem to be a person who's curious, a wide-ranging connector of global trends and dots, um, and so and also uh, an investor, an entrepreneur. And so maybe before we see where this goes, if you could perhaps walk us through a bit of, um, you know, your story, your background, like what brought you to where you are today? Yeah. Um, Well, I mean, I've basically been a serial entrepreneur my whole life. Uh, Before I even realized that was a term and that was what I was doing. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I think I was like seven or eight years old. I was already having paper routes, waking up at like four thirty, five o'clock. Um, ended up doing that until I think I was like 14 or 15. Um, that was kind of, I guess, my first exposure to, you know, having some responsibility, accountability, getting up early, realizing the importance of getting your day started before most other uh, people do. Uh, that naturally led into a variety of businesses as I was young, which obviously failed. I mean, I would have absolutely no idea what I'm doing <laughs> at 14, 16, etc. But I mean, I had a moving business, I had a pet setting business, I had a lawn care business, I took part in every MLM opportunity you could imagine. Um, and, uh, you know, that got my beak wet, I guess, per se, with regards to entrepreneurial activities. Um, was a very, very early adopter of the internet. Um, I think I was one of eBay's first few hundred members. Um, wow. and so, yeah, that, when was I mean, this? Like, what uh, year was this? just when AOL was coming out, because I remember getting all the AOL CDs in the mail and I would somehow find yeah. five or 10 of them and be able to use the internet for free. Um, I mean, everything was very static and kind of text only, and it was just very, very early. So like, as an example, when I got involved with eBay, at one point, their auctions didn't even have images, which kind of blows your mind. Like, how would you buy something online without an image? It's like the cookbooks Um, that I hate. Yeah. And then they finally, I think they added like, you can upload one image or two images or something low resolution. And that was actually my first, um real business that took off. When I noticed that there was this, you know, gap in the market and I launched a software as a service image hosting business for eBay. Um, I think I was back then charging, I don't know, $4.99 a month, $6.99, something like that. Signed up, you know, thousands of users quite quickly and um, started running that business alongside as I was moving into, uh, I guess, college at that point. Um, I was doing business in college. I ended up doing computer science in university. 
And I had just finished, I think, year three, and I went to do a co-op with um, an online company also. And the image hosting business took off. I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. It seemed like the opportunity. I don't know what I was thinking if I was putting my education <laughs> on pause or I was dropping out. I'm not really sure what I was thinking exactly, but um, that was the last time I stepped foot in post-secondary education and <laughs> kind of went from one business to another to another. And it's kind of found me where I am now. So, I mean, obviously happy to go in a little bit deeper, but I mean, that could be quite a conversation. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I really want to drill down super important here. Do you remember your first AOL email address? Oh, and if it's a little racy, you know, you don't have to share because I think we've all got some embarrassing AOL email addresses (laughs) in that back closet of ours. I don't remember it exactly, and I definitely don't have it, obviously, but uh, I think it was like <laughs> Mac or something, something, something. Okay. Yeah. That's, I, you know, it's embarrassing to share this. I think mine was bro127 at AOL.com. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, bring me through um, the late 2000s. So, you know, you're, a young entrepreneur at this point. Um, but then, you know, I'm a millennial. I'm thinking you're millennial as well. Our generation was greatly impacted by the global financial crisis. Um, conversations I even have today with friends, of course, it doesn't come up all the time, but you can kind of feel um, these basic warinesses of money managers and uh, traditional investing. And, but then there's this, um, dichotomy of like now realizing they need to kind of get on that horse. Um, and so I just say all that because you were motivated young, you're, you're, you're charging forth. And then this big event happens that has impacted all of us. How did that impact you as a young entrepreneur? Yeah, so I'd say I had my first real success um, leading into 20, uh, 2005, 2006. And so I had launched an ad tech business. Didn't realize it at the time, but we were quite cutting edge. And we were um, effectively the first solution put together to take advantage of search engine arbitrage. So back in the early days of the internet, Yahoo was the dominant search engine. Um, Google was the up and comer and there was this absolutely massive arbitrage um, opportunity between the two. Um, They basically have this concept called pay per click. Um, And so I'd buy traffic from one, sell it to the other, you know, rinse, repeat, etc. And Uh, it was effectively able to... They were charging like wildly different rates? Very, very different rates. Um, I mean, even to this day it exists, but obviously the Mm -hmm. gap has been closed dramatically by people such as myself. Um, and so that, uh, created quite a bit of liquidity early on when, you know, you're an individual and you're, I think I was 25 or 26 starting to make just absolutely bonkers, you know, money on a daily basis. And so I promptly did what I believe to be the wise thing. And I put it in a major Canadian bank, um, and allowed them to manage that on my behalf as I, you know did the risky stuff by running the active business, let them yeah. you know, be conservative, let me do the risky stuff. Um, and so I can't remember the details exactly, but give or take for about six months, it obviously did quite well, maybe a little bit longer. And then uh, the financial crisis starts to unfold. At that point in time, I was in the Philippines opening up an office uh, for some outsourcing talent. And um, just watching what you know unfolded, it effectively capitulated into a point that, you know, all of this liquidity, aka life savings that, you know, I've garnered from running yeah. all of these businesses, I watched it drop in half. Um, and wow. then I came to this conclusion where, okay, so I believe I've been relatively successful as an entrepreneur, I kind of, you know, sense opportunities, can figure stuff out. Um, obviously, I'll be a successful trader, like, that's a no brainer, right? Uh, so I promptly withdrew all of the money, started managing it myself. And over a period of many months, I don't know, six months, give or take, I promptly lost another half of it. 
Um, oh, dang. Way too much hubris, way too much greed, no risk management, blaming the market. There's, you know, there was always some external force to blame. You know, how could it possibly be me? Um, and, you know, got to a point, obviously, where I realized that it's not the market, it's me. I'm ultimately accountable and responsible for what's unfolding. And I think I need to focus on my own growth and do some personal development growth. And um, that started a journey that I'm still on. And I'd say that's, you know, one of the proudest things that I do in my life is, you know, try to grow mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, and, you know, let's throw financially in there just for fun. Yeah. So it sounds like you perhaps learned more about yourself than the markets those first couple of years would you say, or is it a toss up? Like you obviously still learned about the markets, but like, yeah, if one was more beneficial than the other. Yeah. I think, I mean, most people, when they go into wanting to become a trader an investor, a speculator, whatever label you want to give it and time frame you, you use accordingly, um, you know, goes into it, believing that there's like this magic formula, you learn how to do specific charting patterns or mm -hmm. fundamental analysis or, certain alpha that you'll get from, you know, paying for newsletters and gurus and all of that type of stuff. And I think you quickly realize that while that stuff is beneficial and, you know, clearly you need to have an idea of what you're doing. Like a great example is, you know, to become a doctor or a lawyer, how long do you go to school for eight years plus probably. And yet, you know, people believe they can just jump into trading and immediately be successful and earn mm -hmm. the same type of income or greater than, you know, those types of uh, professions. <laughs> and so, uh, very quickly realized that it's really managing your emotions, having conviction, looking at it from the lens of, you know, how much risk are you taking to get, you know, X amount of reward. And trading is entirely, an, you know, a process of inner discovery and work. Mm -hmm. Well, that's interesting because it seems like your previous business experience, in your words, didn't necessarily prepare you for trading, though you felt prepared initially. Do you think that your work with trading and your personal reflection has in return helped you with uh, your business ventures and your entrepreneurship? Oh, my goodness. Totally. Um, I mean... With regards to pivotal moments in my life, um, losing half of my own nest mm. egg was one of the most pivotal things that could happen. I mean, it, it was the spark that got me on the journey of self-discovery and personal growth. Um, the personal growth and spark is what allowed me to handle the, I don't know, the complexities of running future startups, um, sourcing funding, you know, dealing with the highs and the lows, and they're very high and there's, there's very lows, you know, when you're running your own business and startup, especially with outside capital. Um, and, you know, I think it's led to a lot of the, I guess, success that I've had in the cryptocurrency markets now where, you know, I've really been able to take advantage of this, you know, tailwind behind, you know, what I would call new finance. Mm hmm so um, I want to move on, but just one last kind of practical question, because um, some folks listening are of the younger demographic. And even in my friend group and um, peers, I notice a similar um, pattern where folks are becoming financialized of the younger generation becoming financialized, realizing that they need to invest, do something with their money. Um, but, you know, as I mentioned earlier, and as we have all experienced, there's some kind of scarring from the global financial crisis, and there's a wariness of traditional money managers. And so in, in one way, they realize they need to invest, they lack the time and energy to invest themselves, like, like you were able to do over many years, learn that skill. Uh, yet they're wary of traditional investing schemes. What would you like practically? What what would you tell someone in that position? Well, I definitely understand the feeling of market PTSD. I guess is a good way of putting it. Yeah. I have that from the financial crisis. I have that from our crypto bear market in I guess twenty eighteen and nineteen. And again, when COVID hit and the markets, you know, capitulated, give or take fifty percent in a you know week or two. 
Um, and so I've experienced that numerous times myself. And um, yeah, I mean, I can understand uh, the wariness of, you know, giving your money to a traditional money manager who typically is compensated based on, you know, some sort of salary and, you know, XYZ percentage of performance where they get to share in the upside, but they obviously don't share in the downside because it's your money. Um, and um, I mean, by and large, it's it's difficult to outperform the market. Um, obviously, people do it all the time. Uh, but if, you know, if someone is wanting to put their money to work in, say, the traditional markets, they don't want to do it themselves, you know, time, capability, family commitments, whatever. Um, I think the easiest thing to do would be to put it into an index fund. Um, there's many of these ETF um, like index funds. I mean, the fees are usually, you know, 1% a year, give or take, which is, you know, dramatically lower than, say, a mutual fund, which can be easily two, three, four. Um, and yeah, you'll get your 5, 10, 15% a year if that's exciting to you. Um, you know, that's one way of doing it. Um, and I mean, if you want to get better returns than that, obviously there is an opportunity to put it with money managers, but most money managers do not outperform even those indexes. Uh, many hedge funds don't. Um, and then you, you know, you can look at more alternative asset classes such as cryptocurrency where, you know, obviously I spend the majority of my time in that asset class. So obviously I understand it quite well, but you know, if you want to get exposed, you don't have to be an active trader. You can buy 50% Bitcoin, 50% Ethereum, and forget about it for a few years. And most likely, you're going to outperform inflation. You're going to outperform the traditional stock market. And honestly, you're going to outperform the majority of people that are actively trading crypto because it's quite hard to outperform simply Bitcoin and Ethereum unless you know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Well, let's take that transition. And you know, I just want to ask, how did the crypto markets and that entirely relatively new space initially catch your eye? Yeah, so I was I had just left my second ad tech business and I was starting to manage my own portfolio again. Hmm. First time obviously, lost half of it. This, this is, is after a lot of the time. work you've done and Exactly. Okay. And so I went in with uh a fresh perspective um and uh, really honored the market. Um and you know, I actually was doing pretty decent. Wasn't losing. Um, I was still kind of swinging for the fences a little bit, definitely a little bit too, too much greed and hubris even still. But you know, I was able to get some profit. And you know, I was I was managing I was doing more um, commodities, um, like through futures contracts, that type of stuff, a lot of junior resource mining companies. Um, I started to get quite interested in, I believe Netflix actually around that time, uh, but I was also starting to really hear about Bitcoin. And, um, you know, I, I went through, read the white paper, did as much research as I could. Uh, I think this was late 2011, okay, gotcha. I think. And so I remember trying to tell everybody I could about this Bitcoin stuff. Obviously, you know, it was predominantly developer geeks, such as myself at that point, who were getting uh. all excited about it. So most people didn't even know about it or were just hearing about it. And of course, you know, when you don't understand something, the first thing you do is call it a scam or it's used for criminals or whatnot. Um, it, you know, it's a bubble, all of that type of stuff. And I kind of felt like this was something different, um, but hadn't fully developed my thesis or conviction around it yet. Mm -hmm. And so I promptly just kind of forgot about it for a couple of years. And, you know, obviously it you know, went through its own moves up and down, but, you know, ultimately started to grow quite substantially. And it was around uh, late 2013, early 2014, where uh, started to deploy some of our ad tech companies treasury into uh, a dollar cost averaging basis into Bitcoin. So, you yeah. know, X amount every single month, no matter what the price, um, and started to build a Bitcoin nest egg. It was starting to grow in our company's treasury. And then was able to eventually parlay that into um, Ethereum when it got launched. We didn't get into the original ICO private um, opportunity. We got in once it was public. That led to playing the ICO boom um, in 2017 to 18, uh, very strongly. And, you know, turned out to be a lot of the seed capital for a lot of the private equity investments I do now or we do as a company now. And uh, helped uh, start an active business in the space and, 
you know, Bob's your uncle. <laughs> Go Bob. So being in relatively early, um, have your beliefs or how have your beliefs changed about the space and crypto blockchain technology uh, over that time period? Possibly if at all. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, it's really easy to opine now mm -hmm. about the early days and how everybody had such a strong conviction and we were certain this was going to be a major asset class. But I mean, I'd say by and large, that's not true. I mean, there was periods and, you know, that was there, it was not clear that this was something that was going to stick around. That was actually, you know, the thesis was going to play out. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, obviously over time that thesis has, you know, got a lot stronger and now the, you know, the industry is much more than just Bitcoin or say even Ethereum. There's this whole concept of just digital assets in general, uh, where we're heading into a world where effectively everything will be tokenized. So stocks will be tokenized, commodities, supply chain, you know, you name it. Um, it's just, you know, it, it, it will be the underlying future of everything. And so. I think the one thing that's changed since I got involved in, I guess, late 2013 is this movement from, at that point in time, it was more developers, techie individuals. Mm. And then we moved into the era of more the average day retail investor, which was probably like 2016, 17, 18. And now we're in the area or the era of institutional money starting to move in. Uh, you know, we, we've always heard this concept of the institutional herd is coming. Well, I'd say the institutional herd is here. They're not fully deployed yet for a variety of reasons, including, including being risk averse. You know, the space is too volatile for them. Regulatory certainty isn't fully here yet. We still don't know how the alphabet agencies want to, um, you know, regulate crypto. But I think we've got across the chasm of, are they going to ban it? Um, China took, you know, the stance of, you know, effectively banning crypto. I wouldn't say it's a total 100% ban, although that is kind of how they communicate it to the public. Um, but that's their, that, that's been their approach because they're launching their own central bank digital currency mm -hmm. and they didn't want there to be a competitor effectively. Um, and so I think the US and Europe and just in general, the West is going to embrace crypto, but put it on, put a wrapper around it of regulatory where they can control it, they can tax it, they can regulate it. Um, and, uh, it remains to be seen how that plays alongside their central bank digital currency, which will also be coming down the pipe. Mm -hmm. Has, has your time in um, this new technology, this new space, has it changed the way you then now see the traditional um, financial space or possibly more importantly, just the, the macro economic landscape of the globe? Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess a very easy comparison is the traditional finance system is full of numerous gatekeepers and intermediaries in between every single transaction, all extracting a fee. That's ultimately coming out of our pockets as investors in that space. Not to say, you know, some of them are not providing value, but by and large, there is a lot of fee extraction with very little value, you know, added. Great example, money manager doing the exact same thing at, say, 3% a year fee that an index ETF could do at 1%. Um, and the concept in crypto is effectively, you know, everything is decentralized. There are no intermediaries. Blockchains are effectively operating as, you know, bank ledgers, um, and uh, there is no central authority um, in charge. I mean, if there is an authority, typically it's a decentralized autonomous organization, which is referred to as a DAO, which is a group of, you know, decentralized individuals, many times all over the world. And, um, you know, once you've kind of experienced decentralization and how easy it is to have kind of self-sovereign custody of your own money be able to execute quite complex financial transactions without having to go through a bank, being able to send, you know, six figures or seven figures to someone and it lands within 
you know, a couple minutes versus a wire transfer that's $35 that, you know, you're lucky if it lands same day, if not a couple of days. Um, I mean, the legacy financial system all of a sudden kind of feels archaic. Mm-hmm. So I want to get a little philosophical and you can go as deep as you want here, but crypto is often evangelized as the answer to increasing financial and economic control. Um, yet, we have seen that story play out many times before where new technology is essentially hailed the same way, yet the real world outcome is very different. Where do you stand in this conversation? Yeah, um, I'm not here to say that cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, blockchain, digital assets, you know, all those different labels that are relatively referring to the same thing, give or take are going to completely, you know, replace our existing financial system. Mm-hmm. Um, I think over time, it kind of is a certainty it will, but that's, you know, not happening next year, five years from now, anything, anything like that. And so, you know, the, I guess the way I, I look at crypto is it's democratized access to financial services for those that have been typically disenfranchised with the ability to partake. This could be looked at through many lenses. A great example is um, many of the more sophisticated products available in traditional finance that are, you know, allow you to say hedge downside risk or, uh, you know, provide extremely compelling yield much greater than you would get from, you know, an off the shelf type of product. Those are only available to accredited investors. So you need to have at least a few million dollar net worth, make at least a couple hundred thousand dollars a year in income. And so, you know, that's done kind of under the premise, um, typically by the SEC, at least in the U.S., um, you know, protecting the investor from themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mean, you could look at it from that lens or you could say that, you know, it's uh, not giving them the same opportunity that the rich have. Right. And so in crypto everybody has access to the same types of products. Now, granted, if you're running on Ethereum, you know, maybe gas fees are a little bit more expensive if you have a small, you know, um, crypto portfolio versus a large one, you know, although there's other blockchains, etc. But by and large, anybody, no matter what their net worth gets access to the same type of products. Well, that's already quite interesting. Um, Another, you know, example is, you know, no matter where you, you're located on the globe, I mean, you can partake in, you know, crypto and decentralized finance. That is not the case in traditional finance. Um, I mean, if you want to do a transaction at 2 a.m., you know, giddy up, go ahead, right? You can do that in crypto. You can't do that in traditional finance. And so it's kind of given the power back to the average everyday investor trader. Um, and you know, in the right hands, that is, um, you know, incredible in the wrong hands, you know, it's kind of a financial, financial nuclear weapon when you, where you can blow yourself up. And so it's, you know, has both pros and cons. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so to drill a little more into the pro and con, um, I feel like you've probably already answered half of this, but I just want to give it to you in case you haven't, what's your greatest hope from crypto and what's your greatest fear? Um, I guess my greatest fear would be that when regulatory gets rolled out and there's already discussions with regards to it, that it is somehow an extremely draconian, malicious regulatory route that, um, you know, the U S by and large, which is the leader of the West, uh, follows. Um, I mean, crypto was kind of launched under this libertarian ethos of, you know, minimal, if any, you know, central authority intervention. And, uh, you know, we're starting to already see that uh, regulation at times can be quite malicious. Um, I mean, a great example is what's happening with the trucker protests. You know, I don't need to get into all the deals philosophically with regards to that. But you know, basically, they've been able to freeze certain crypto wallets um, through centralized exchanges. So if you host your own wallet, well, you know, that's quite difficult for them to do. But if you have your crypto, say, on a centralized exchange like Coinbase or Gemini, etc., you know, they're able to sanction that wallet, and they have to, you know, 
obviously freeze your account and you no longer have access to your money, similar to a bank account or a brokerage account or that type of stuff. And so, you know, that's definitely where my head goes with regards to fear. Um, and then I would say, you know, my greatest hope for the space is that um, Ethereum and its decentralized finance ecosystem, you know, continues to move forward and, you know, continue to get more total value locked within its ecosystem. We continue to have clear regulatory with regards to what types of products we can launch, who they can service. And we're able to deliver on this ethos of, you know, democratized wealth abundance for everybody. Mm -hmm. And then what about from the, also from the perspective of society, like what's the greatest outcome that potentially could happen for society? And then what's your greatest fear of what could happen for society? Yeah. Um, well, starting with fear again. So everything that happens starting on a with blockchain fear. is... But hey, we're ending I, with hope. I'm, so. I'm always... <laughs> exactly. I always uh, look at the downside first, which you know, I think is actually probably pretty prudent from as yeah. an investor perspective. Yeah. Um, so everything that happens over a blockchain is transparent. So that that can, of course, be, you know, have numerous benefits, um, you know, you're bringing transparency to the financial system. I mean, how amazing is that? Um, but at the same time, you know, as blockchain is, you know, harnessed through central bank digital currencies in the future, that gives them visibility into every single financial transaction. Mm -hmm. You know, they could, you know, automatically withdraw taxes, as an example, from your account, or, you know, if you're deemed not to be compliant for a variety of reasons, Potentially, your central bank digital currently currency wallet is frozen or something, um, and so it just kind of takes uh, surveillance, I guess, financial surveillance to another level potentially. And so that is definitely a fear um, with regards to you know how blockchains could be harnessed, um, and with regards to you know positive and hope. Um, I think. You know, there's this opportunity for, um, so, I mean, we're going through this, uh, you know, tech evolution right now, mm -hmm. right, which really got dramatically sped up when uh, COVID hit, you know, this move to digitization, decentralization, work from anywhere, um, that type of stuff. And so, you know, my greatest hope for, you know, crypto, and I think tech in general, is that it continues to democratize that self-sovereign ability for us to, you know, create the life, the lifestyle of our dreams and, you know, be able to live, work, entertain, play wherever we decide to, you know, whether that's, you know, in Hawaii or, you know, Victoria, Canada or Toronto or, you know, wherever. I mean, that's from a, you know, physical location perspective, but we are entering this era and of the metaverse, or in fact, you could say, we already effectively exist in a 2D metaverse. I mean, most people spend enormous amounts of time on their phone, on their you know laptop, on their tablet, on their TV, on their smartwatch. I mean, on their big screen, on their in their car potentially. I mean, how many devices and screens do you need at any one point in time? Right. I mean, clearly we're in some sort of metaverse already. Um, but as you know, we do move to this concept of a 3D metaverse, um, which has two paths, a centralized 3D metaverse run by you know, the Facebooks of the world or a more decentralized 3D metaverse run by a lot of these blockchain companies. Um, you know, this completely provides yet a, a new avenue to live, work, you know, entertain, etc. And I think we're just it's it's so hard to even know how that's going to impact our life and, you know, in, in positive ways. I mean, think about opining about the internet in the late nineties and how silly, you know, it would now seem if we looked back and, you know, listened to those conversations yeah. from 20 years ago. Right. And so it's kind of the same thing now, like, you know, I could give you, you know, a whole bunch of guesses on how I think it's going to play out. Uh, but like, ultimately I think we're ended, we're going to naturally end up spending at least a large chunk of our downtime entertainment time in these, you know, metaverse concepts. And, you know, that may be as simple as going to digital concerts um, in the metaverse, which is effectively already happening. Um, and, you know, maybe it gets as, as, as complex as uh, 
dating, running businesses within the metaverse, um, serving customers, having shopping centers. I mean, the world's kind of your oyster with regards to however creative you want to be. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So I want to change gears a little bit here. I'm happy to jump back in the metaverse, um, figuratively speaking, if you'd like to later on. But an underlying theme of um, our conversation so far with crypto seems to be freedom. Some people gaining freedom, um, um, hopes of gaining more freedom in the future, potential restrictions of freedom. And so I just want to ask you, how important is the concept of freedom right now? And then also, how is our society currently thinking about it because there seems to be a lot of talk about freedom right now but it it almost feels like people are saying very different things just using a similar placeholder i just threw a lot at you so yeah let me know if you i want to break you want me to break that down yeah no i mean I'll, i'll touch upon it um yeah i mean honestly i'm a little bit perplexed per se and discussions around freedom in general as you know people questioning the definition of freedom and um you know kind of freedom and you know lumping that in with you know right-wing beliefs and you know all of that i mean at the end of the day you know we're all sovereign autonomous humans who have you know a right to transact um, you know, a right to live our lives how we see fit, as long as we're doing no harm to others or just, you know society at large, etc. And so, you know, for me, I mean, freedom is effectively fundamental to you know how I live my life. And you know, I'm not here to judge how someone else wants to live their life, nor would I expect someone to judge me. That's obviously not exactly how things are playing out there right now. Um, but you know. Bitcoin and crypto specifically, you know, was launched with a libertarian perspective. And, you know, many people that exist in the space, you know, still have that, you know, permeating their beliefs when they're, you know, putting together businesses in the space and approaching the space and education and, and, you know, and, and that type of stuff. And so um, I think we're, it, it's hard to say where we're heading, but I mean, at the moment, there is definitely a movement towards curtailing freedoms under the guise of, um, you know, kind of doing what's best for your fellow human uh, with regards to not offending any any individuals and kind of towing the line with regards to society. And, um, you know, we're kind of kind of feels like we're losing our human autonomy. Mm-hmm. Do you think freedom is mandatory for economic stability and growth? Well, I mean, I would say when someone has the ability to freely choose how they spend their time, how they spend their money, how they choose to live their lifestyle, however they choose to identify, you know, on and on. I mean, that naturally allows you to tap into your creativity and, you know, your free human spirit. And so, I mean, this creativity is is naturally what feeds into the ability to, you know, express yourself through entrepreneurial endeavors, you know, be the best, you know, individual you can be for your family, you know, your coworkers, you know etc. And so by curtailing freedom, I think you're kind of squashing the human spirit. So so you feel like it's more of a, a necessary component? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, that's my perspective. Mm-hmm. But yeah. When um, today, when protesters are calling for freedom, I kind of mentioned earlier, it it feels like there's more going on. Do you have any perspectives on that? Or you just, is it kind of like, yeah, they they just want freedom as the way you've kind of defined it? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, freedom and especially to do with, you know, what's unfolding right now with regards to protesters and that type of stuff. I mean, that is a catch all with regards to, you know, how people are feeling. But, you know, there's definitely a a group of society. And I think the group is continuing to get larger and larger over time where they've kind of had enough of being told what to do, you know, when to stay home, how to, you know, spend their money, what they can and can't say, what they can and can't do, mm-hmm. um, you know, pot- pot- having to show identification to, you know, do normal, uh, everyday, you know, exercises of life. And, um, you know, whether this is permanent or temporary, I mean, if you look at it from a perspective of a trajectory, I think the trajectory can be quite scary for a lot of individuals, um, you know, that covet freedom. And, um, you know, it's, it, we're kind of getting to a, a place where I think people are starting to lose a little bit of faith in our institutions. Um, you know, media, if you look at the polling, is, you know, quite atrocious with regards to the percentage of people that trust mainstream media. Or, you know, I guess a, a term that a lot of people throw around now is the legacy media. Uh, but I mean, similar even online. Yeah, of course, you can kind of post and say whatever you want. But there's a lot of disinformation online, right? There's Anybody can be a publisher. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's I mean, honestly, it's it, we're, we're living in an era where it's extremely hard to know what the truth mm-hmm. is, no matter, you know, what your, you know, perspective is left, right, somewhere in the middle, you know, doesn't really matter like and everybody you know approaches their own reading research choosing their news sources from their own point of bias right you know we kind of already have our own inherent ways that we identify our ourselves and then we go look for content that supports that Mm -hmm. right and so i i mean it's you're just you're kind of feeding the beast yeah exactly yeah if you're here listening and you agree with everything you're saying i you know maybe you should go find some podcasts that are a bit more disagreeable to you. Um, so you, you spent a lot of time in advertising and I feel like, uh, you know, so far talking with you, we've been kind of like pulling out lessons you've learned in your different avenues of, of, um, experience and expertise. What has advertising taught you, um, that's applicable to say perhaps the way you see the world today? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's quite easy, actually, to answer. I mean, the biggest thing that I pulled from advertising is that fear works. Mm. And so, you know, back in my advertising days, the easiest thing to do is get someone fearful over some sort of condition that they have um, or, you know, whatnot, you know, be able to extract that fear, take advantage of the fear, build the fear up a little bit more, and then offer them a solution to the fear. Uh, I mean, simple as that. And so, you know, everybody kind of refers to the media as, you know, you know, it, it runs on fear, basically, right? Fear sells, fear sells. And I mean, that's true. Um, I mean, there's this kind of inherent, uh, deep down, you know, human psychological condition that, you know, once you feel, you know, scared and fearful, you know, critical thinking kind of goes out the window, right? And then you're looking for a solution to that fear because it's, you know, mentally draining to, you know, feel like that. And so, you know, once you get someone into a fearful state, you can quite easily suggest ways to alleviate the fear. But what's even more powerful than fear itself is apathy. Hmm. So you, you kind of get people to a point where they're fearful not always exactly sure what they're even fearful of because there's so much information coming from, you know, left and right and everything in between. You then kind of get to this point where you're overwhelmed, kind of throw your hands up in the air, and then you become apathetic. And then once you become apathetic, um, I mean, anything that's kind of pushed in front of you that, you know, seems relatively attractive to get you out of that apathetic, fearful state, well, you'll gladly accept it. That almost, the way you phrase it almost sounds purposeful do you believe there's a design behind that or it's more um a feedback system where uh us as humans we 
I mean, there's been studies where we naturally interact more with fear-based news. I just spoke with a gentleman a few weeks ago who did a study during COVID. Um, he's like, man, all the news is just super negative. Did a year-long study. Turned out in the U.S., 87% of the news was negative, um, whereas Canada, the U.K., Australia, New Zealand was a little more like 50-50. Um, and he thought that was because we do naturally engage with that negative news and the U.S. news media system just happens to be more reactive and feed us what we want as opposed to more neutral. So do you, do you think it's a more of like a, a give and take um, kind of process or a little more like purposeful? Like, oh, this is like, this is the way to well, advertise because it just like brings in the dollars. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, we do have this kind of inherent human condition where we're always looking for what can go wrong. Mm -hmm. And I think that's definitely where, you know, fear kind of fits in where, you know, you uh, come across a story that somehow induces fear. And then before you know it, you're going down a rabbit hole of, you know, every, you know, related, uh, you know, uh, topic with regards to what you just learned about, you know, figuring out what's happening, how is this going to affect my life? Is it going to affect my lifestyle, my bank account, you know, my love life, you know, etc. Uh -huh. And so there is kind of that inherent human condition with regards to that. Um, but I think, uh, you know, going back to what I said earlier, I mean, by getting, you know, individuals in a fearful state, it's a perfect condition to kind of precondition individuals and plant seeds with regards to how you want them to act uh, moving forward. And so, you know, I'll, you know, a great example is a lot of government policy is, you know, based upon polling of this, you know, of the population. Um, well, I mean, when you poll a population, um, you know, you have to realize that that population has been preconditioned based upon the media that they have ingested. And so if the media is putting fear-based stories out there, whether they're choosing to put those stories out themselves or, you know, you go down the rabbit hole of ulterior motives of, you know, people, you know, that are pulling strings behind the scenes or, you know, whatnot, nonetheless, um, ultimately, you know, the media, you know, puts these fearful stories in front of us that, you know, obviously I'm sure they have, you know, an element of truth, you know, maybe blown out of proportion dramatically, um, it, it then kind of builds the fear in the populace. Um, you know, preconditions them to kind of believe a certain way and almost get to a point where they believe those thoughts are the, are their own thoughts. Um, and then they get pulled and then that becomes government policy. Um, and it's kind of this vicious cycle. And so, you know, if that's your intention, I would say it works brilliantly. Um, cause I know it works brilliantly because it works well in advertising. Yeah. So of course it's going to, you know, work well with regards to greater society. Um, so I think that's a perspective. Mm -hmm. So we've got a few minutes left. I want to pull it into, um, give you a chance to speak about um, some global issues. Uh, just in general, China is going to continue to be a massive component of the next decade and uh, in regards to relations with the U.S. and just the um, global world order. Um, of course, we... You know, when this comes out, it'll be a little later, but uh, uh, Russia just invaded Ukraine. So we have some, you know, kind of hot off the press news there, which I, I don't want to dive into the micro weeds too much, but I just would love to kind of hear a little bit of your, um, and maybe it's not even related to China or Ukraine or anything, but what's kind of your global perspective when you think about the next decade, the next few years? Yeah, we're definitely moving from this world of there being a, a unipolar superpower being the United States and obviously it's vassal, you know, states, uh, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, you know, UK, etc. Um, to more of a multipolar world where you now have China that's joined the world stage um, and, you know, is give or take an equal partner, um, not partner, but, you know, equal, um, you know, nation state to the United States. Um, in, in, you know, in power and in influence and, you know, uh, the economy, etc. And so I, I think one, one way, I guess, to maybe a little bit better understand what's unfolding in front of us right now, you know, this is just a thesis of mine. I mean, I'm definitely always under the opinion of strong opinions loosely held. So as new information comes in, you know, maybe I'm completely dead <laughs> wrong. Um, that would be amazing. Um, 
But, you know, when, uh, you know, the U.S. ended up pulling out of Afghanistan and it was, you know, kind of a disaster, you know, as it played out over the remaining few days, um, you know, I think ultimately it made the U.S. look quite weak. Um, and I think that's what's emboldened Russia as an example to be able to, you know, take advantage of, you know, this perceived weakness and, um, you know, move in and, you know, do what they believe is in their own best interest to secure elements of the Ukraine. Um, I mean, I think from their perspective, they were probably seeing, um, you know, obviously heavy U.S. influence in Ukraine and, you know, potential for NATO buildup, potential for nuclear weapons. I mean, who knows how any of those would have played out. A lot of what I'm saying is I'm pulling from the news just like anybody else. Um, there's always very different conversations going going on behind closed mm-hmm. doors. Whatever's released to us through the media is, you know, has a very small sliver of truth versus what actual happened behind the doors. Um, but, you know, it very, I, I would say it very much emboldened Russia. And I think it's also going to embolden China. And so... You know, I think it's absolutely horrific, you know, the humanitarian crisis that potentially would unfold. But, you know, it wouldn't surprise me that China makes a move on Taiwan in the future. You know, I don't know if that's a month from now, a year from now, five years from now, um, you know, but I think we're probably heading into a world where that's going to start unfolding. And so we're actually in this era right now. I'm not sure if you or your viewers are familiar with the book, uh, The Fourth Turning, uh, but basically uh, society operates um, on these between about 80 and 100 year cycles. And there's four of them in between. So they're, you know, let's say 20 to 25 years each. And right now we're in the fourth turning, which I believe started around 2005, 2008. Um, and then it goes to, I don't know, 2025, 2028 or something. And this is effectively, you know, the crisis period it typically leads to war, uh, typically leads to some sort of breakdown of society, which then, you know, leads to a rebuild, rebuilding of society, um, you know, and that can go either direction. It can go much more draconian or much more towards a more, you know, abundant, um, you know, version of society. And so it's, you know, if you just look at it from a cycle perspective, it's kind of expected that we're going to see a lot of these upheavals that we're now seeing mm-hmm. in front of us. Yeah, I totally second the recommend- recommendation on that book. Um could have been maybe a third shorter or two thirds shorter. Sorry, Neil, but uh, super, super great read. Really interesting uh, thoughts in that book. Um, and yeah, you know, thinking about these comments might age really poorly, uh, even over the short time frame. But it certainly seems like to also second your opinions on Russia moving into the Ukraine recently. Like it was very well. Um, orchestrated, it appears, because many analysts that I've been reading who often have really, really good calls in these things, after a week of kind of hobnobbing around and like conferences and stuff, they're like, yeah, he's not going to invade. He's not going to invade. He would have done it already. And then there he went and invaded. And it certainly appears like that was the strategy. It's like, and so we're, we're dealing with, um, powers that have for decades perhaps uh, felt they had a certain potential, but were perhaps unsure of how to express that on the global stage. And it, to your point, we're, we're seeing that. And you know how much is connected to Afghanistan, we'll never know. But of course, there's, there's going to be connections. And so, you know, I'm, I'm curious as kind of a wrap up and, and you kind of mentioned this a little bit, but how do you think we're going to, going to remember, say the two thousands, the 2010s, and then how might we remember the, the 2020s like 60 years from now? Yeah. I mean, I do spend a lot of my time in the finance area, so that does color my perspective on a lot of things. Um, I mean, monetary and fiscal policy and specifically monetary policy, you know, through the federal reserve. Um, I mean, I think this is going to be known as the era where, you know, we've really kind of lost the script Mm. with regards to how to, you know, run an economy. I mean, a perfect example is, I mean, we were, you know, already, you know, we, you know, the U S dollar was already getting debased quite heavily, even before COVID. And once COVID happened, I don't know what the stat is specifically, but 
something along the lines of 50% of all US dollars that were ever printed were printed within a period of what, like 12 months or 18 yeah. months or something. I mean, that's clearly, clearly not sustainable. <laughs> um, and then we're, you know, we're, and then of course we've been having, you know, initially we had supply chain issues predominantly because, you know, everybody was, you know, locked down. Obviously we didn't understand this virus and everybody was very fearful, right? Um, well now, you know, many of these supply chain issues are happening because, you know, people have, you know, I've chosen not to, you know, part, partake in, you know, getting, uh, you know, vaccines as an example. And then, you know, it's reduced the, you know, the workforce. Other people have chosen to drop out of the workforce because they're getting, uh, you know, fiscal subsidies not to work. Um, and, you know, some people have just dropped out because honestly, life is a little bit mm -hmm. chaotic right now. And, you know, maybe it's easier just to stay at home and, you know, have one income or you reduce your expenses, that type of stuff. And, so if you know you start looking at all these different events playing out, I mean, we're now in this inflationary you know situation where you know uh, publicly it's stated as I think what seven point five percent give or take. I mean, it's probably about double that. Um, and so if you're in this era of fifteen percent inflation, and you know your option is to either allow it to continue or to come in and start raising interest rates and, you know, push the U.S. economy, which effectively Western, if not worldwide economies into recession. Um, I mean, that's a hard decision. Um, I mean, you you really don't want high inflation for a variety of reasons, including getting reelected come midterms later this year. Uh, and you clearly don't want a recession because, you know, then you have people in the streets. And so you're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. And honestly, War is a great distraction mm. from that. Well, I was going to wrap it up. Uh, that's a tough note to end on. Any, any, any hope for the future? Oh my goodness! Yeah, I mean, mm. there's tons of hope. I mean, I'm seeing a you know a natural progression towards individuals looking to grow their awareness, their consciousness, um, and you know consider their impact on the planet. Um, I mean, we've clearly been destroying the planet. I have no doubt about that. I mean, I wouldn't say I 100% align with, you know, the exact narrative of, you know, what's unfolding with regards to how we've done it. But by and large, we've clearly, you know, done extreme damage and people are becoming much more aware of their actions, you know, choosing, um, you know, di different ways of, you know, living in, you know, lower impact, um, you know, by and large, crime is down dramatically. Um, you know, opportunities are greater than they've ever been. I mean, with, especially with obviously the advent of the internet over the last 20 years, and now moving into this world of web 3.0 and crypto, where we're now moving to, you know, the ownership revolution, where you can now own, you know, you know, your own finance or your, your own art, you know, through NFTs, you know, etc. And so, I mean, it's pretty amazing where, you know, someone growing up in some random area of India, someone else in some random area of Argentina, someone else, in, you know, uh, you know, a wealthy family in Toronto, they all effectively have similar opportunities if, you know, they're willing to, you know, go down the rabbit hole of learning for themselves, developing critical mm -hmm. thinking and, you know, learning new skills in this uh, kind of new virtual economy that's starting to play out in front of us. Yeah. So Aaron, if, um, where are you spending a lot of your time right now? You know, I think we're getting towards the end of our discussion. So I just would love to kind of get caught up like, what projects are you working on? What are you most excited about just in Aaron's world? Where, where are you um, uh, looking forward to? Yeah. So, I mean, I definitely spend a lot of my time in crypto. Um, I do manage a, a portfolio for myself and a few business partners have been doing that since, mm, I don't know, 2014, give or take. Um, do a lot of uh, private equity, um, early stage investing in technology companies, exponential health companies, um, that type of stuff. And then I also run an active business in the crypto space. And so um, in 2017, or late 2017, um, I was a co founder in a business that um, effectively wanted to use uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence to 
uh, predict where the prices of Bitcoin specifically could go. Um, and so, you know, you suck in enormous amounts of data and, you know, you run some, you know, obviously some computing on top of that. And then you can develop what's known as predictive analytics. And so long story short, that company merged with a major Bay Street company out of Toronto. Um, and now we're putting together um, what's known as structured products for institutions and high net worth individuals. And so a structured product, I mean, the easiest, I guess, way to explain that is an index fund. I mean, that is effectively, a, you know, a a structured product. And so right now we offer that to the accredited and high net worth individuals and institutions. But that's only because from a regulatory perspective, that's the only way we can do it compliantly. Um, I think the regulatory rules are relatively archaic. Um, and they're trying to fit crypto into the existing system. Many of these regulatory rules go back, you know, many decades when obviously crypto and the internet wasn't even a thing. Yeah. And so we are going to have to need new regulations and new, you know, alphabet agencies to be able to manage, you know, um, you know, this area of new finance. Um, and so, you know, as that continues to get more clear, we will be moving to democratize access to our products to everybody, which is, you know, our, our mission. Yeah. Fabulous. Well, that sounds like a whole nother discussion for their time. I'm sure there's, there's lots of, uh, really interesting stories you could share with that. Um, thank you so much for your time and thanks for coming on. Oh, awesome. Thanks for having me. Yeah. It's been a pleasure. A pleasure. Before you go, got a quick new announcement for you. After the next couple episodes come out, we're going to end season one. And we're going to take the next six months then and dive down deep and create a podcast mini-series where we'll have the freedom to drill down into the core pillars of an empire. We'll stack all those up as different episodes. Each episode will be a single topic. And we'll look for a single thread running throughout. What brings all these crazy different topics and events together and that way we can better understand what we're going through today and what our future might look like. We're super excited. If you'd like to follow along, go to our website, click on subscribe. We're not going to hit you with emails all the time, but we will let you know when the release date is. So thank you so much for being on this journey with us. And we're very excited for what's in store ahead. <laughs>